It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. We have to have the music because they tell us that podcasters like... Uh, uh, like the same thing over and over again. They like repetition, which is why I start by saying hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. Uh, I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Uh, and I'm fairly confident that I will today with the panel uh, that we've got here. Um, this is not any ordinary uh, Brexit Breakdown podcast because we've got a live audience. Uh, we're at Podcast Live in central London on October the 5th. The date being quite important because Brexit stuff changes by the hour, never mind the day. Um, yeah, we've got a live action audience of actual people who, um, you know, I first wrote I've got nothing better to do on a Saturday, but actually people who want to sit and listen and learn about Brexit, which I don't think there's anything better you could be doing on a Saturday, frankly, <laughs> because what is coming down the track in the next three weeks uh, is going to affect us all. Um, and hopefully uh, these guys will give us some sort of... Uh, steer on what that might be, although that might be quite a big ask given uh, the state of politics, society, etc. Um, yeah, who I've got here? I have got, first of all, let's start with the team from the UK and Changing Europe. Uh, at the far end, we have Professor Catherine Barnards, uh, Professor of European Law at Cambridge University, Senior Fellow at uh, UK and Changing Europe, and a two-time question time star, correct? LAUGHTER uh, I did have a big bit about how Anand Menon had uh, decided not to come because he got the ump because you've been on twice and he'd only been on once, <laughs> but of course he's been on twice <laughs> now as well. Um, instead, we are joined by the UK and Changing Europe's latest big name signing. Uh, signed in the week, uh, unveiled. Did they do a little Twitter unveil video for their new signing? They really should do, be onto that sort of thing. Um, it's uh, Jill Rutter, is now Senior Research Fellow at the UK Changing Europe and still at the Institute for Government as well. Are you, you wearing two hats these days or, or have we got all of you now? When I'm talking Brexit, I'm doing it for UK and Changing Europe. When I'm doing non-Brexit, I'm doing it for the Institute for Government. So Is there non-Brexit? Is that a thing, non-Brexit? Does that even... <laughs> if, if there's anything ever non-Brexit, then I'm doing that at the Institute for Government. But um. uh, everything else, so today I'm very much UK and Changing Europe. Uh, I did notice in the week that you uh, tweeted something and said, uh, this person knows more about this than me. Uh, and I was like, you're doing Twitter wrong. That's not how you do Twitter. You have to go on a bit. <laughs> I know it all. This is correct. Um, we need to give you some... some I'm trying to think who I did that about. Yeah, anyway, well, you'll have to probably, remind me. You know, probably Catherine, actually. Yeah, <laughs> um, one man who does do Twitter right is the uh, undoubted champion of Twitter threads. Um, he is the uh, Europe editor for uh, the Telegraph, Telegraph Group these days, or just a daily... Yeah, Telegraph sure. Media Group. Telegraph Media Group, yeah. okay. Uh, and he is uh, Peter Foster... And last but by no means least, uh, we've got a knight, our second knight on the podcast after Sir John Curtis. Uh, it is Jonathan Fall, who describes himself on Twitter as an erstwhile Eurocrat. But I mean, that doesn't really do justice to what nearly 40 years as uh, what essentially a sort of uh, an EU civil servant, but a, a senior EU civil servant. Um, so I'd um, quite like to start there, just um, to say at the uh, end, we will have some questions. Uh, we'll try and do some questions from the floor for the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes. So um, <laughs> I don't know if you can think of anything to ask about Brexit, but you know, by all means, uh, put your thinking caps on for the next half hour or so. Um, but I'd like to start with Jonathan, a Eurocrat. Um, there is a theory that we have got where we are 
um, because the UK doesn't really understand Europe. Um, you must have been reading all those stories over decades, talking about Eurocrats and trashing Eurocrats, frankly, and you were one. Um, what was that like? Not always pleasant. Um, sometimes true. Uh, when? When was it true? Eurocrats. When, when were Eurocrats, Eurocrats trashed fairly? Eurocrats, like all other, um, well, it depends what you mean by Eurocrat. Uh, the civil service makes mistakes, as all civil services do. It's a very good professional civil service. That's what the Eurocrats really are. Um, Eurocrat is often used in the UK to describe the politicians as well, which is a mistake, but okay, a perfectly reasonable one. The political decisions are made, the laws are made by the politicians, not by the civil servants. Uh, is every regulation and directive uh, ever produced by the European Union perfect? Of course not. Uh, so some criticism is no doubt justified, and mistakes have been made, and things have been have been done which should have been done differently, and things have been not as well explained as they could have been. That's obviously true in this country, but also true elsewhere, of course. Well, you talk about explaining what's going on in Europe. Of course, a lot of those stories came out of, uh, well, the Telegraph, frankly, uh, courtesy of, of, of one of their former correspondents in Brussels, who is, uh, is now Prime Minister. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to hold you, hold you responsible for that, Peter. Um, first of all, can we just answer the question that I'm sure everybody wants to ask you. Um, your Twitter handle is PMD Foster. Is it true that stands for Peter Mad Dog Foster? <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you ask. <laughs> um, you've, you've reported from all around the world. Um, you've done uh, Washington, uh, Beijing. Um, how does this compare to what you've done before? And how has perhaps what you've learnt elsewhere inform what you're doing now? Yeah, it's actually quite a good question because I think you know, one of the reasons I come at Brexit um, the way that I do is that I did spend 12 years uh, covering, um, trying to explain uh, uh, India, the subcontinent, and, and China and Washington and the United States back to British readership. And when you spend more than a decade away, um, the kind of exceptionalist, British exceptionalist narrative that drives a lot of the Brexit um, uh, 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 animates a lot of the sort of energy behind Brexit um, becomes, you know, sort of, sort of faintly ridiculous. You know, I, I, you know, you have a very clear sense when you're based in Beijing or in Delhi or in Washington of the UK's actual size in the world. Now, the UK is a fantastic, has a fantastic set of soft power qualities. You know, it has language, it has geographical position, it has intense, um, you know, creativity. It has loads of things going for it. But what it's not is a go-it-alone superpower. And that's why, right from the get-go, I was very clear that the reason that we weren't a trading powerhouse was not, because I'd watched us struggling away in India and China trying to, you know, there's a new export initiative a week, um, you know, and it was very clear to me that Brexit wasn't going to fix that, you know, and that actually we needed to have a clearer sense of our relative position in the world before we, you know, set off on a, on a, as a, on a sort of buccaneering, go-it-alone narrative. Well, won't, won't the the buccaneering narrative that we're about to set up. Set up. Well, uh, hang on, right, hang on. We better, better wind it back. Are we about to set off at a buccaneering narrative? Uh, just briefly, we are leaving the EU, right? That is going to happen. Are we all agreed that's probably going to happen? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes. we, we are leaving the European Union. It's the question is when and how. And yeah. both of those questions have proved to be a tiny bit more difficult than some of the proponents of Brexit indicated. And there's a big issue here because, of course, we're coming up to a crunch point now. 
Um, we know the politics are complicated, but we know the Ben Burt Act says if there is no agreement um, on the revised Article 50 divorce text, and it hasn't been voted through the House of Commons Lords by the 19th, there is a requirement to send a letter. Not exciting, but there is a letter to request an extension. But the qu what all of this is just dancing around the fundamental issue that we are leaving, but on what terms, and crucially, what's going to happen next. And what's not discussed in any of the debates at the moment is that this really is the end of the beginning. It's not some dramatic new departure point because we haven't worked out yet, although we got a slightly more clear answer in Boris Johnson's letter to John Claude Juncker this week, what the future is going to look like, what sort of arrangements we want, and what the trade-offs will entail, because no free trade agreement is, it avoids trade-offs. You know, it's, it's not cakeism, quite the contrary. If you and I are having an arrangement, you've got to give something, I've got to give something, there's got to be give and take. Yeah, I think uh, I think the really interesting thing is that everybody is obsessing about the withdrawal agreement. Obviously, that's the thing that's very top of mind at the moment. But the really the most interesting thing in Boris Johnson's letter that Catherine was just mentioning to uh, Jean-Claude Juncker earlier in the week was his saying, actually, we don't want the sort of arrangement with the EU long term that Theresa May was looking for. He said, no, that backstop she negotiated, that was a bridge to a future relationship a relationship that, remember in Chequers, she wanted to be quite close. She was going to stick with EU alignment on goods regulations. She well, probably would have ended up in something that looked not very different to a customs union. And he said, that's a bridge to nowhere. That's not the relationship we want. We want a much looser arrangement. So all that stuff we had, you know, remember when we were told frictionless trade, exact same benefits, that's now nowhere near what the government once, and actually the government's being, in a sense, more honest than Theresa May. I mean, it's a point Peter's been making. It's more honest that actually it's made a choice. Its choice isn't to basically leave but preserve everything the same but without the obligations, things like that. It's actually saying, you know, we are going really quite a long way away, and this, on that basis, our proposals of Northern Ireland are actually how we square that circle. But I think we aren't talking about that. It's really interesting. You know, Greg Clark on the floor of the House, was quite positive about this deal. But Greg Clark is the very same man who effectively read out the brief from the automotive summit at Chequers about why you actually needed to stay in a very close customs arrangement and you needed to stay aligned on goods. Greg Clark seems to have forgotten that temporarily. Interesting whether it comes back. Um, Greg Clark's also the man that was um, constitution minister during the Scottish re referendum. And I had an interview with him and said, let's talk about the Scottish referendum. And he said, no, let's not. <laughs> like, you're the Constitution Minister. He said, I think you can read too much into words. <laughs> like, you're the Constitution. He said, go talk to Nick Clegg, was his, his response. Um, Jonathan, um, it's interesting what, what Peter's interesting, what everybody says, but I want to just go back briefly to what Peter said about um, Britain's view of itself in the world. Um, how does Britain's view of itself, uh, how did it sort of manifest itself when you were in the EU? Was Britain, uh, you know, a, a, a very enthusiastic participant behind the scenes, the stuff that you were doing, um, you know, did it understand that its, its role in Europe was, uh, you know, we hear you know, very much that the UK shaped a lot of European policy, um, or were we always sitting there going, no, we're better than all you lot? Well, we weren't always enthusiastic, but we were pretty effective, I think, over the, the period of membership. 
the UK contributed to the shape of lots of European policies and, and making what they are today. And the big, a lot of the big debates now in Brussels about is about where things go when the Brits have gone. Uh, and uh, of course the EU is a very different place from the one we joined in 1973 as a result of British policy again, much bigger enlargement and so on. So yes, the UK has a lot of soft power uh, internationally and in the EU had quite a lot of hard power because of uh, the people it sent to Brussels, I mean the politicians, not uh, and the, uh, the caliber of the civil service and the commitment that was usually uh, present in the way British government went about European business. So, uh, and that's gone. It's going and it's nearly disappeared altogether. And so it is worth bearing in mind, of course, that <coughs> UK uh, civil servants are not participating in almost any meetings in the EU institutions now. And so they're already preparing for what it will look like when we leave. And they say, well, this is much more of a, an international relations game now rather than an EU relations game. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting, I used to be a civil servant before that, and uh, my last job at the Treasury was as press secretary to one Gordon Brown. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, that was qu a quite, you know, by UK standards, quite a pro-European government in theory. But very early on, at his first EU finance minister's meeting, Gordon Brown wanted to come back with a giant victory. So I remember he said, briefed the press beforehand, not through me, um, through Char a guy called Charlie Whelan, to say, I'm going to Europe to fight to be able to reduce the rate of VAT on fuel and power, this is the late 1990s, big issue, uh, down to 5%. I am going to go and tell the Commission and tell Europe we are going to fight for this and we are going to win. So he went to his council, did the Today programme, which just took all of this, you know, pretty uncritically. Um, I know we're critical about the Today programme now, but, you know, back then it sort of bought it all. He went on and won his victory. And then um, Evan Davis, who was the uh, economics correspondent of Newsnight at the time, did this interview with Gordon Brown. He said, so, Chancellor, you claim you won this great victory over Europe, which you're you know, headlining all the press. I can't find a single person in Europe who was opposing this because actually it was perfectly within the UK's rights to reduce it down to 5%. That was absolutely a flexibility any UK government had. But we've had politician after politician who have always seen Europe as a sort of battle and where you wanted to score up victories uh, over Europe and that was what played well to domestic audiences, actually irrespective of which sort of government it was. Do you, do you see that changing, Peter, in, in the coverage? Do you see... Uh, you know, a, a much because back then nobody really paid any attention to the EU. Let's be honest. Um, and now everyone's an expert, sort of thing. Um, do you think you know people are actually paying more attention to how the EU works? You know, people out with the Westminster bubble, essentially. Yeah, I, I don't know outside the Westminster bubble. I don't think people are sat in the pub going, you know, I'm not paying that common that common external tariff. No freeborn Englishman ever paid a common external tariff. You know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really buy that. I do think uh, there is a strange sort of bifurcation, really, where there's still an awful lot of nonsense written about Europe um, from a kind of exceptionist British point of view, which is aimed purely at a domestic audience. Um, Jonathan will, will, will remember when Cameron was doing his negotiation, and we were talking before we came in that, you know, actually Cameron wanted something big on free movement. And there were lots of things already that he could have done, that the Austrians were doing, that if you don't have a job and you don't have this, you, you know, lots of ways. But Cameron didn't want that. What Cameron wanted was a retail win, like Gordon Brown. 
out of, I mean, a political retail win out of the negotiation. Um, and it's still, we're still in the same place, you know, uh, and I think you'll see the European Council uh, on October the 17th. I, I think it's extremely unlikely Boris Johnson will have a deal. Uh, and then you'll start, you'll just, you'll see theatre instead all aimed at what's going on back here. I want to come on to what's going to happen, <laughs> which is the really hard bit. But let's, let's sort of start with just uh, how we got here. Um, a lot has changed since we were last doing Podcast Live, uh, you and me, Catherine, in, in March. Um, what has really mattered? What has been perhaps the most important issue or the most important change since uh, March 29th when we were obviously meant, meant to leave? Well, <coughs> the most obvious change, of course, is we've had an extension. We're in fact, we've had two extensions. Um, we had a very short one and then the longer one to the 31st of October. Um, secondly, of course, we've had a change of prime minister and there is quite significantly a change of tone coming out of number 10. Uh, number 10, uh, the cabinet under Theresa May, she tried to carefully balance leave and remain and we know that that didn't work. So obviously Boris Johnson comes in and packs a cabinet with um, hardcore leavers with a strong message that we are going to um, leave on 31st of October, do or die. Which brings me to the third thing, which I think is really significant, which has happened, is of course the Ben Burt Act, because that has changed the dynamic. So the Ben Burt Act is the one which requires the um, Prime Minister to ask for an extension. The other thing that's underpinned all of this, which has not happened, because it, but it's the, it's the dog that hasn't barked, it's the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because the thing that Prime Ministers used to do when they were in a hole was call a general election. Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which of course was negotiated in the context of a very, very different government set up by the coalition, has said you need a two-thirds majority to call an election, and Boris Johnson can't command that which leads us to the paralysis in Parliament and, crucially, eventually leads to the Supreme Court getting involved. Um, Jill, uh, obviously, you know, you've been at the Institute for Government. Do you regard Fixed-Term Parliaments Act as a swear word, essentially? Uh, we have very mixed views on the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, actually. We want to do it Comes a, up a lot We think podcast. of doing a debate about the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, whether it's, you know, really trash the Constitution in unpredictable ways. It does show, I think, for everybody who's saying, oh, yeah, what we need is a written Constitution be careful what you write and put in law, because it's undoubtedly introduced a new inflexibility that we didn't have before. So, you know, it was a short-term fix to deal with the circumstances in the 2010 coalition, give the Lib Dems a bit of guarantees that the Conservatives couldn't just pull the rug from under them at a time of their choosing. Um, they had to wait five years before the Conservatives decided to shaft them in the general election. So, uh, so you know, but we are now living with those bizarre consequences. So, uh, so I actually think that's all right. I think actually the Fixed End Parliaments Act really shows that our MPs haven't made the mindset adjustment to what happens you know, when you have to have more continental-style politics of minority governments who have to sort of form deals within a parliament. It's exposing the lack of that. But I think the big thing that's happened, I'm going to add my big thing that's happened, and I wonder whether the uh, European U Union 27 will ever come to rue this, is forcing the UK to take part in the European Parliament elections, which neither major party wanted. Yvette Cooper was on the record saying we don't want that. Uh, the Conservatives certainly didn't want it, but agreeing to do it, which basically gave a wind to a political party that a year ago did not exist. UKIP was, you know, on its knees. The Brexit Party, I think the rise of the Brexit Party and its success in those European Parliament elections 
effectively determined the outcome of the Conservative Party leadership contest because it's what actually meant all those MPs who were, we thought, in the anyone but Boris camp thought we have to have someone who can take on Farage and Boris is the only person. But I defer to the mind of the Conservative voter, Mr Peter Foster. <laughs> Wrong. Harsh. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> um, uh, but no, but because but I, I think that, that is actually reflective of something of the most important thing that's happened which is, if you think Theresa May's deal was essentially created by gravity, not by strategy. Once all the unicorns had been murdered, you were left with right, a deal that, as far as possible, walked a middle road between protecting the union of the United Kingdom, protecting supply chains, and giving a modicum of freedom on things like free movement for the politics of the legal single market. That deal is dead now, partly because of what happened? Nobody really foresaw how influential the EU election was going to be because if you remember before that, Nigel Farage was on his march. Two men and a dog and three blokes in a, oh in yeah. a cloth cap showed up. Everybody thought it was a joke. Suddenly, bang, it created this party. Now, what did that do? It forced Boris Johnson to be elected on a very hard Brexit ticket. Now, before Boris Johnson made his first speech to the House, July 25, there was a huge internal row about whether or not Boris would go for some kind of time limit, some kind of exit mechanism, something that would get... Jeffrey Cox to tweak that advice. Do you remember the stuff that he came back with that meant the Brexiteers? All of that was thrown out the window. I want abolition of the backstop. I want a very hard uh, a Canada minus FTA. That is a fundamental shift. And the trouble is now, each iteration of the wheel, so Boris will go, uh, or, I mean, unless some miracle happens and he suddenly pivots back to a Northern Ireland only backstop and a much higher line relationship, there will not be a deal uh, between now and next Friday, which is the deadline the European Union have set. So there will not be a deal. He will come back. He will almost certainly be forced to um, whatever the jiggery-pokery and the sort of, no, oh no, we've got some clever plan in Downing Street. It's nonsense. There will be an extension. There will be an election. Boris Johnson, sake of argument, gets a majority, and he comes back having purged the Tory party with the Brexit party on his right flank. The next iteration of the negotiation will be that much harder to get back to Theresa May's middle ground, right? Because Boris Johnson would have been elected with a majority on that ticket. And yet the same strictures will present themselves. If we're having a very, very strict Canada minus FTA, what do you do about Northern Ireland? Do you actually just quarantine it entirely into a full fat, just some territory of the European Union and single market for goods, and then take your chances on the union? You know, the Scots are really going to want a north-south trade border. But, you know, we have the wheel actually has made a very significant turn, and I think it's very hard to see how it goes back, absent a, you know, a Corbyn win, and then you've got a Corbyn-SNP coalition, and you know, maybe you get back to customs unions and the kind of Labour soft Brexit. I think, I think it's quite hard to see how you get there from here. Are you shaking your head, Jonathan, because you disagree, or just in sort well, of pity and sadness uh, all <laughs> that, all that all potential outcome? All of the above. But no, no, I'm going to disagree. I, th I, I suppose that's helpful in a discussion <laughs> of this sort with my fellow panellists. Um, seen from over there, nothing has changed since March, apart from in a completely throwaway, uh, unthought-out, with no consultation that I've seen any evidence of at all, uh, abandonment of the level playing field destination, which is actually the most important issue. But seen from Brussels, October or March, nothing has changed. There is no serious negotiation. The United Kingdom doesn't know what it wants. It remains thoroughly divided. Uh, both the major parties are divided. Uh, we are nowhere nearer 
uh, to a serious solution for the Northern Irish uh, island border. So what has changed? Not very much, except there's another deadline coming up. So the, the most significant it changes or, or the most significant events since March are actually things that haven't happened. There hasn't been a general election. There hasn't been any significant deal. Um, you know, it, it's the it's a weird sort of the negative is actually more important than the, the, the positive. I mean, we were sort of talking about... I think we've wasted the time, um, <laughs> as Donald Tusk warned us not to, but anyway. Um, you mentioned Northern Ireland, Jonathan. I do want to talk about that because, uh, obviously, we booked yourself and Peter because we knew what was going to happen in the last week, that Northern Ireland was going to blow up. And your plan, essentially, or, or something very similar to the plan that you first mooted in August, um, which didn't seem to be broadly welcomed with open arms by the government, um, seems to have been adopted by them. Uh, it's, not, it's not quite the same. <laughs> um, I mean, what is remarkable is that it is only now uh, that there is the beginning of a discussion about what is going to happen uh, in the island of Ireland, where it was patently clear from 2015 onwards that this was going to be a major issue and it has been neglected, ignored, uh, or, or dismissed in a very cavalier and, frankly, uh, uh, extraordinary way. Um, that's where the EU and the UK meet on the ground. Uh, and any solution, uh, uh, the temporary one and the definitive one, will have to uh, take full account of that. And yes, I put, put forward some ideas uh, uh, a month or so ago, and the government has now put forward different ones. Some Not, not completely different. No, not completely. Uh, and the bullet that, and it's, uh, I shouldn't have used that word, of course, in this context, but it's relevant. The bullet that has to be bitten is whether Northern Ireland is treated very differently from Great Britain and how you live with the consequences of that, knowing that further down the track uh, in this extraordinary poisonous uh, subject is Scotland as well, as you mentioned yourself. So uh, borders are important. Uh, the land border in Ireland has been many things in its rather short history. It has never been a border between the European Union and a third foreign country. It's about to become that. Uh, the British side were certainly forewarned, well aware, that this was going to be a major issue. I have seen no evidence until last week of serious thought being given to uh, how to cope with it. Uh, only moderate thoughts. Yes, <laughs> I'm being polite. That, I mean, that's uh, fairly outstanding, really, isn't it? <laughs> In all this time, uh, that's where we've got to. Peter, you uh, broke the story that the government was adopting something not a million miles from what Jonathan came up with. Um, how did you get it? Tell us how you got that story. Go on, who told you? <laughs> no. How did, but uh, give us a... Give us a <laughs> ooh, um, I mean, give us a rough idea of how that comes. I mean, you, you know, you are clearly very well connected in Brussels um, in particular. Um, you know, how does a story like that get out? Is it just somebody leaves you a brown envelope in a car park in Brussels? Or uh, do you get a WhatsApp? Just give us a, 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 as much as you can. How do, how do these stories get to us? You know, I really... It's, it, it's almost anything I say... Uh, you know, I, I can't go there. <laughs> you, you, you know, you know, I'm just, I'm yeah. afraid. Anything I say, uh, I can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I can just 
step back and think about that technology. At the moment, we are deeply leading, we will be leading in human technology. And this means that if there is some giggling, hopefully, and the, the industry is now spent, that there will be a hard border in Northern Ireland in three weeks' time. Now, this couldn't be done so passively from the point of view of businesses, but actually we've got to help them work out how on earth they're going to manage to get around that border, what tariffs they're going to have to pay, how they're going to manage an import and export with that border. The world is changing dramatically. And if I could translate it into my small world of the university, it's a bit like saying, well, in three weeks' time, I'm going to run a new degree course. And of course, the entire university system said, how dare you be suggesting that? You've got three weeks from now, earth is going to set all of that up. Now, this is at a micro level what we're trying to do at a macro level. And I think it's really, really important to note that that's true in a no deal, but it's also true in the proposal, right? So Jonathan's ideas about we need to trust each other's law enforcement capabilities and, uh, you know, uh, what the British proposal is asking is that between now and the ne in the next week, basically, the EU agrees to make a treaty commitment that there will never be checks on that border. It's external border with the European Union, right? Sign away that in an international treaty obligation. And by the same token, the British government is saying that its offer to align to the single market for goods could be pulled away at any moment by the Northern Ireland Assembly prior to the end of the transition period, and again at the end of a, every rolling four-year period, and then you get straight back to what questions you're having. The British government is saying that it will quarantine the risk posed by... Northern Ireland, 1.8 million people, small economy, and it reminds uh, the European Union that on the level playing field, so following environmental, social, etc. regulations, the European Union has already said Northern Ireland doesn't on its own produce the risk, right, that it would do all the UK. And so how is it going to quarantine it? It's going to erect a customs, a regulatory border in the Irish Sea. How is it going to do that? It says in the document that the government put out, it says, well, we're not going to use the EU system which is how the entire cornerstone of what you know is in the market going across the border is based on. We're not going to use that system. It wouldn't be appropriate. We're going to use our system, which we haven't built yet, by the way. <laughs> right? And we want you to trust that that system is going to work and you, have no, and you have no say over it. Can you imagine any business, anybody in the world who would sign a contract on that basis? It's, if, if people read that document, they would just understand how fundamentally unserious it is. Can I also give... I mean, there's another thing... Um, Swapping back to my Institute for Government hat, uh, 10 days ago we published a report about Northern Ireland called Governing Without Ministers. Because the key thing is this proposal gives a big role to the Northern Ireland inst institutions. I mean, it's actually quite a burden to place on Northern Ireland institutions if they were functioning incredibly well, had been up and running, relations between the First Minister and Deputy First Minister were going absolutely swimmingly, Chuckle Brothers, Brothers Mark II, or whatever. But they're not. There is no executive in Northern Ireland. There hasn't been for, I think, about 990 days now. Uh, there is no, no Northern Ireland Assembly at the moment to give its consent. So actually to have something that's predicated on the existence of those institutions is a very weird thing. So what then happens if those institutions don't exist? You know, we are probably going to have, you know, some sort of direct rule. Effectively, if you want to make decisions in Northern Ireland, they have to be made through the UK government using primary legislation if there's not political cover already in Northern Ireland. So which way does the UK government go on this? I mean, yeah, it's sort of another sort of bit of the jigsaw that doesn't really fit 
beyond the fact that would a responsible government really give a very fragile executive that sort of falls over quite often um, the decision making over do we stay aligned with the EU and the Republic of Ireland or do we stay aligned with GB. I mean, Northern Ireland did identity politics way before they came here. That is the absolute fissure down Northern Irish politics, and it is sort of reigniting it in a very potent way, I think. But uh, taking take a step further back, even if the Northern Ireland institutions were remarkably effective, and King Solomon was the first minister, <laughs> and Aristotle the deputy first minister, <laughs> think of how Belgium, Spain, uh, other European countries with rather strong regional parliaments are viewing this. Uh, you are asking, they would say to the British government, the EU to accept that essentially a veto over these arrangements uh, which we are committing ourselves to in an international treaty are uh, devolved to a, a regional assembly with no hitherto understood competence in uh, European and foreign relations. It's, uh, it's quite extraordinary. But of course, uh, the you know, subnational parliaments do get a say over the UK's future <laughs> relationship with the EU, don't they? Because that has to be ratified by national and subnational parliaments as well. Okay, yeah. so hang on. Back so to Wallonia. Yeah. So we've got four of the greatest Brexit brains in front of us, and it sounds to me like you're all saying that this Northern Irish proposal lacks good faith and is actually an exercise in choreography ahead of a blame game post October the 31st. Is that a fair summation of what you're pointing to? We, we could say it's the, the, the first roll of the dice. The trouble is rolling dice for the first time a week before the deadline is not ideal. Are and they rolling the dice in good faith? Well, it's, it's, a a, it's a big claim to say that they're not doing it in good faith because I do think ultimately both sides want some sort of deal. But the trouble is... As we know, the Northern Ireland issue is so complicated. We've talked about it, actually, in a rather technical way with a bit of reference to politics, but I think there's also a psychological, sociological dimension that borders have got a significance in Northern Ireland that they do not have in other places. And the fact is that the politics and the circumstances in Northern Ireland we know are already highly febrile. And to throw this expectation and the talk of a border of whatever form into this debate is really uh, um, adding fire, uh, fuel to the flames. And given all that, to suggest that this proposal was not being made in good faith would obviously be a very serious claim, but you're all saying it's a, it's a completely daft plan, so how can it possibly be made in good faith? I, 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 you know, I don't read the mind of Boris Johnson. I would say that both sides, this is me speaking as a reporter here, both sides have very little expectation that, a, that this proposal can lead to a deal. The EU, I think, won't go there. They can see that Boris Johnson's boxed in by the Ben Burt Act. Um, they've got, the from an EU perspective, they have that. So there is a kind of, I think, expectation that this will end in failure and will end up in an election and an extension. Because if Boris Johnson does, it's quite binary, the border. That's the problem, yeah. right? So if Boris Johnson does pivot to leaving Northern Ireland in the customs territory of the European Union, i.e. in the customs union on its own. You know, that would be pretty much... That Michel Barnier's got that in his bottom drawer, right? It was the proposal, essentially, that he produced in 2018, February. So that is the only way, in my view. Now, you can, you can build in some nice w framework about how the consent operates, not veto, but consent operates. And because 
you're then doing Northern Ireland only. You can be much lighter touch on level playing field. A lot of those annexes that are in the existing protocol can be done away with because not, I mean, not all of them, but you can lighten them because it's only Northern Ireland only, right? The trouble with that for Boris Johnson, this, uh, and uh, you hear this from the EU all the time, if he does that and he fails, all he's managed to do is dent his Brexit credentials because the ERG and the DUP will go nuts. Farage will be on the sidelines going, he's trying to sell us out. Um, so it's a huge risk. It's a big reward, which is maybe that deal goes over the line in Parliament. But again, if you're going to park Northern Ireland in a special best-of-both-worlds relationship, going back to the GB, the rest of the United Kingdom, EU, Canada minus, right? People need to be really clear what mm. that means, Absolutely. right? Well, that what means... What does it mean? So put it into numbers, right? It means probably between 5 and 7% of GDP that we otherwise would have had that we won't have between now and 2030. It means checks at the border. It means if he's serious about having no level playing field commitments, it almost certainly means tariffs yep. between the UK, between GB and the EU. It means a properly frictional relationship. Now, if you're in that relationship and you're a British company, you talk to people in the Treasury, how do you remain competitive, right? How do you if, you, if you've got all those frictions, forms to fill, tariffs to pay, how do you remain competitive? The, basically, the only way is an internal devaluation of wages, right? So how do the Labour Party back that proposal? What about if the makers of BMW make the EU do a better deal? Because that's what's going to happen. You're all talking Britain down. Can't, can't there be a, can't, isn't there going to be a, isn't there a potential of any sort of positive outcome? Can't we get out of this one? Uh, at least, you know, a zero-sum outcome somehow, or is it? does it have to be negative? Well, I'm sure BMW makes very fine cars, but they, everybody's been expecting them to arrive uh, late uh, a la Waterloo and, and sort all this out. They're not going to. Uh, of course, uh, German industry, just to take that as an example, has an interest in this, but the idea that this is going to be sorted out uh, because of things like that. It would have happened three, five years ago if that were true, and it's patently not. So, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, the I'm not going to ascribe motives to people any more than my, my fellow, fellow panelists have. I don't know what they're, they're really playing at, but, I mean, the sheer facts of the matter are that if this is simply uh, an opening of a negotiation, that negotiation needs some time, uh, because there are very weighty issues which need to be sorted out. Uh, and it is extremely unlikely that anything uh, can be agreed within the next three weeks to iron out all the difficulties that we've been talking about. Can, so I, make, can I make a dull law, law point to add to... Law's not dull, Catherine. Have you not seen... No. You've been, you've been <laughs> watching the Supreme Court. It's where all the action is now. <laughs> Lawyers are cool. The dull legal point is, if we leave with a no deal, either on the 31st of October or the 31st of January or whenever... We will, as we've already heard, still want some sort of free trade agreement with the EU. Trouble is, the legal regime under which that's negotiated is infinitely less favourable than the Article 50 regime we're operating in under at the moment. And remember that the EU can only negotiate if they've been given a mandate. In other words, they can't just the Commission can't just decide one day we'll we'll give them the the, the Brits this and that. They need a mandate, and that mandate will probably say. There won't be any negotiations on a free trade agreement until we've sorted out, wait for it, Northern Ireland border, citizens' rights, and the money. And then, follow. we're back in exactly the same spiral that we're in at the moment. 
And even if we can overcome those problems, it's very likely to be an agreement which is called in the jargon a mixed agreement, which requires unanimous voting. And of course, it also needs, as Jill mentioned, ratification from all the national and regional parliaments. That brings national politics into it. And remember, it's not just the UK that has politics. Think about Spain at the moment, in also quite a difficult situation. And before you know it, it starts to become very difficult indeed to see how negotiations on what's called the future economic partnership, the free trade agreement, will actually be delivered. And so there is a real risk that, in fact, we have a no-deal Brexit on either 31st of October or January, and it becomes almost impossible, legally and politically, to negotiate a free trade agreement. So we are back into the world of WTO, and that's really, for um, supply chains, pretty bad news, and for services, which is Jonathan's area of expertise, really pretty bad news indeed. And really bad news for agriculture as well. So I think agriculture, fish things like that, that need access to the EU market. Those are where the really big tariffs kick in. So, Right, call it then. What is going to happen? We'll start with you, Catherine. What is going to happen on the 1st of November? Are we going to be in the EU, out the EU? What, you know, what yeah, is going to we'll happen? We'll be, we'll be in the EU, um, but in the sort of penumbra position we're in at the moment, so still a member but not actively participating as a member, and there will be an election because actually um, at that moment, Jeremy Corbyn loses the reason for saying we won't have an election. But just pause for one point. Of course, the logical thing would be to say we'll have an election 28th of November. Remember, it is dark in November, mm -hmm. and there has not been an election in the UK in November since uh, 1930s, and there hasn't been an election in December since 1923. Um, would you agree that we'll still be in the EU and... Uh, yeah, how do you see that? Yeah, what the timing on that I election? I agree, What's agree your take with on that? everything that my, my learned friend on my left has said. That's a first. I posit, so I, I posit so one Johnson's alternative. So going to have to ask for uh, a, an ex extension, is that what you're saying? Say again? So Johnson will have to ask for the extension. Yeah, yeah so he'll still be Prime Minister. Yeah, it's okay. like that, it's a bit in Indiana Jones. You know the bit in Indiana Jones where there's kind of a swordsman goes, and then Indy goes, Who's Boris Johnson in this? No, Dominic Cummings is. You know, you know the thing <laughs> right. So, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Ah, oh, that's for us to know and you to find out. You know, we got we got some clever ruse. Well, what is it? Uh, you know, let's get all of the most learned people in the in the. What, 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 there isn't one. You know, I mean, I, I will posit one alternative because I think I agree actually with Catherine. But you could see a scenario where you end up in an extension by hook or by crook, whichever way, um, and then the appetite for an election disappears, right? The Tories haven't delivered Brexit, they don't really want an election, Corbyn's in a mess, the Labour Party's in a mess, and this is s the thinking among some people. I don't think it's likely, because I think gravity takes over on the politics, but you end up with a unity government, right? Or you end up with a... Uh, and then you get to, well, well, what is there a majority for in the House? Probably Theresa May's deal, with some of the softening customs union stuff that was negotiated in the cross-party agreement in the spring. You get a confirmatory referendum with, a, with the Lib Dems to bring them on board. Pass a withdrawal agreement bill, subject to the confirmatory refer referendum, which is attached to the second reading. And Parliament delivers Brexit. Or doesn't. I, I mean, I, I actually, I don't, that's not what I, my prediction, but I mean, I just <laughs> think that yeah. if Catherine's wrong, that's one of the things that might happen. Jill, what, what, uh, which okay, of well those appeals? My, or my, you great, got an, my great rule of having done Brexit the last few years is to not make any predictions. So let's offer a different scenario to both of those. I'm not saying this is particularly likely. Slightly tempted to go for, of course, there'll be a deal because actually Europe will say, 
Johnson will probably win a People versus Parliament election and we'd actually be heading for this deal. Why not take effectively no deal plus money, which is what's on offer now, rather than no deal without the money or having to pursue through the courts or a long-term trade deal. But let's do a different thing, which is that uh, Boris tries, you know, doesn't get the two parties asked and says, and he says, okay, we all want to get this over. We're going to have to cut the wound. Uh, we're good at referenda. Uh, yeah, I've got my mate Dominic here. We're good at referenda. We know how to win those. Uh, I'm going to put it to you. It's a clean Brexit or it's remain. These halfway houses, they're utter rubbish. Those are actually the only two real choices that you put forward. Clean Brexit is what? The clean deal that I've totally failed to negotiate? It, clean Brexit is actually we'll just walk away at the end of it. We'll just walk away and then we're free and independent. And, and then, per my learned anyway, friend, we're, b so we're back doing the same anyway. thing all over again. Well, I just did uh, threw in well another yeah. scenario yeah. for you or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so, Pete, so Peter's got a world in which Theresa May's the sort of lowest common denominator everybody can agree on. I've got my world in which Theresa May's deal is actually the thing everybody thinks is a less good option than their preferred option. Those two preferred options, we've seen that polarization happen. <laughs> is there is not the sort of you know, mass movement behind the compromise. There are people swimming to each poll, that's what all the evidence shows, you know, remain or, leave or really leave, proper leave, Faragey leave, let's actually put that back to the people and then let's be done with it. And then we can have an election when we're through that. And Sorry. I get to be Prime Minister beyond George Canning, which is the other <laughs> sort of thing to bear in mind. Jonathan, um, November the 1st. Well, I think Catherine is probably right, uh, but what this country really needs is to put the cart back behind the horse <laughs> and have a proper debate about what it wants its future relationship with its continent to be. And that means the political parties, the component nations of the United Kingdom, taking a little time to work out what they want, because on the other side, they are met every time with the question, well, what exactly are you looking for? And there's never been an answer. Uh, so, uh, and the time-honored way in this country under the British Constitution is to have a general election to clear the air. It might not do it, of course, because it might not be a conclusive uh, election result. Uh, and it might reflect the state of opinion in the country, which is very divided. But the country has to find a way uh, to, you can't just muddle through this uh, uh, in, in ways which sometimes have worked here, but you can't because on the other side, it's a legal construct. Th there are international treaties to be agreed, and there are laws to be written and obeyed. Uh, so uh, the engagement with Brussels, which hasn't really happened seriously uh, at all, has to start, but can't start really until the country knows where it wants to go. Brilliant. I think that's, a, you know, we sort of come full circle. We've come back to Britain needs to figure out who it is and where it belongs in the are world, we, and that, that's how we go forward. Are we capable of having a fact-based conversation? I mean, is it actually, you know, all the stuff about people are, are going on a ticket of a clean-break Brexit. It doesn't exist. I mean, this whole, I mean, I, I, I mean, I despair. I spend, you know, are we actually capable, or, or do we have to have an election, then we have some sort of royal commission? Can I ask Jonathan a question? Yeah, of course. Is that right? <laughs> Jill's, the Jill, Jill's scenario, which is the, you outline the British negotiating gambit, right? Which is, you know, come on, chaps, you can have a no deal. You're going to end up with a trade border in Ireland anyway. So why not take the 14 months, take the money? This is the, you know, we know the Irish don't like it, right? But but come on, Angela and Emmanuel, you know, you get the money, you get citizens' rights, you get transition periods. It all calmed down afterwards. You get you get your GIs. 
What's not to like here, right? I know little Leo will be a bit upset, but you know, what, what's the... Now, now we, the people call that the, the Merkel gambit, as it were. Um, I'd be curious, Jonathan knows you better than anyone else. Does he think that is going to work? And if not, why not? You can't underestimate the desire to get things moving. I, I was going to say get things over. I don't think it will be over for I was say a get very Brexit long done, time. Jonathan. <laughs> I know. I mean, that, I that is, I'm afraid, yet, yet another meaningless slogan because getting Brexit done doesn't mean getting to the 1st of November. It is, as, as Catherine said, at, at best the end of the beginning. Uh, but uh, they are tired, they're fed up, they want to move on. I'm talking about the 27 over there. Uh, the plight of the Irish is well understood, but Ireland itself wants to move on. So I don't rule out uh, some uh, compromise with give and take on both sides if there is a serious engagement on negotiation, if the United Kingdom is serious about negotiation and has some goals, uh, offensive interests, defensive interests, the normal things you go into, into an international negotiation with, if the country has those things, but I don't see them. Okay, I want to fit in some questions from the, the floor. We'll just finish up with the feature, which is called In the Unlikely <coughs> Event This Podcast Has Not Enlightened You Sufficiently. I think that's the right wording. Basically a recommendation. We get, we've got a massive list of all the things that our experts tell us. If you want to understand Brexit, read this, watch this, uh, look at this. Uh, listen to this. Um, let's start at the far end. Catherine, you've done a few of these before. What have you got for us this time? This time, slightly off the wall. Um, but well, it was um, Bucks Fizz last time, so you got, you got <laughs> No, that's true. It's not, not, not a great track record, is it? Uh, no, this time, um, Toy Story 4. It's a nice story about cooperation and uh, different interests helping each other out to rescue Forky and the others. And even if you don't like that message, then at least you can have a nice evening out watching a rather enjoyable film. Okay, I'll have to think about that one. But, uh, it's a good film, so yeah, I'll, I'll buy it, but I, I'm not quite <laughs> sure how it relates to Brexit. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it does. Everything does, let's face it. Um, Peter, what have you thought of? My recommendation is get on a cheap flight from Gatwick to Belfast and spend a week on holiday in Northern Ireland, yeah. down uh, in the border country, uh, and um, go and see for yourself the fantastic countryside, the beautiful people, the extent to which the economy there is stabilised and normalised, and then go and spend some time in Cross McGlen and talk to people about their memories, about how they used to be stopped on the way to Gaelic football training, etc., and detained for hours. Um, you know, you, you, you need to go and get a fingertip feel for that to see why, um, what, you know, the Brexiteers will say, you know, they're just being difficult. This whole Northern Ireland thing is confected. It's a nonsense. Um, and I would just say, I mean, as a reporter who, the reason I feel, I think, quite strongly about Northern Ireland is I spent most of my early years as a reporter reporting on the Good Friday Agreement, etc. And, you know, the scars are really healing. But, there's, you know, if you go to Cross McGlen, the last soldier who was killed in Cross McGlen in 1993, Danny Blinko, was shot by an IRA sniper team, the bullet strike is still in the wall of Murtagh's bar. Right? It's painted over. Nobody dwells on it. The bullet strike is still there. When, when I last first drove into Cross McGlen, you'd see a big, like a man at work, orange sign up on the thing, and it said, Sniper at work. And beneath it, there were letters IRA in these big, um, you know, the trick Irish trickle law. 
Now you go there, the sign's gone, the I's gone, the R is sort of half-drunkenly on the, on the post, and the A is just about there with the sort of peeling and fading. No one's restored it. No one's taken it down. Mm. No one's restored it. Nobody wants to restore it. No, nobody will. This isn't about going back to troubles, but it's about latent memory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, borders... So, that, so I would say, go on holiday across McGlenn, and when you, after you've gone there, go and read Katie Hayward's extraordinary yeah. paper about alternative arrangements, yeah. which you can get on the UK and EU website, mm-hmm. and yeah. ask yourself whether or not the kind of border that's being proposed operationally could ever work down there. And as a footnote to that, if you do all of those things, if you want to cheer yourself up, you go to the Giants Causeway, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Yeah, I thought that your holiday sounded intense, Peter. They sound <laughs> wild. Um, Jill, what would you recommend? Is it your first outing? Or are you go- you're going to have to come up with loads of these over the next couple of years. What was your first one? Oh, God, because I found this hard enough. I was trying to do tortured tennis and cricket metaphors, because that's what I usually do. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to recommend something that you've probably, you know, given the audience, you've probably all seen already, which is you go to that fantastic Brexit musical, Hamilton, and you listen to the lyrics of what I call the Brexit song, uh, which I'm going to read quickly because I can't sing, which is... I thought we made an arrangement when you went away. You were mine to subdue, when even despite our estrangement, I've got a small query for you. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise, empires fall. It's much harder when it's all your call. All alone across the sea, when your people say they hate you, don't come crawling back to me. Uh, So Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote that in 2015, uh, George III talking to the American uh, independence rebels. The difference is that they, of course, had the founding fathers, people like Alexander Hamilton and all the others, George Washington. So I think the really interesting question is when we need to remake our politics, where are our equivalents of the founding fathers? Um, Jonathan? I've never played this game before. Do we have unlimited resources? Yeah, you can recommend anything. Okay, because Peter's got people flying from Gatwick to Belfast. That's easy. I've got them flying around the world. So, picking up on other themes, uh, Toy Story, uh, some of you will know this. Uh, The music to uh, Toy Story is written by an American called Randy Newman. Yeah. uh, Very witty uh, composer, and he has a very good song called The Great Nations of Europe, uh, as seen by themselves and by uh, others. Uh, And as Peter was saying earlier, I think uh, I would uh, fly people out of Europe, out of the UK and out of Europe altogether, and get them talking to uh, the Chinese, the Americans, the Indians, the Australians, about what Europe and what Britain uh, mean to them and how they relate to it. And that, I think, uh, will be rather uh, sobering in the way they think about Brexit. That's uh, a very wide set of recommendations, very, very varied set of recommendations. We've got a few minutes. Can we try and squeeze in some, some questions? Um, how many have we got? What do you reckon we can fit in? Let's try and do, what, should we do two or three at a time? Let's do two batches of two or three. So um, are you all right to, to be the mic person? Is that okay? Uh, let's have uh, any women want to ask questions? Everyone knows golden rule of panels, always ask a woman first, because <laughs> then they'll be more inclined to answer but it's all men that want to ask, that uh, says something. Uh, okay, let's go with the fellow in the hat at the back, because he's nice and easy to spot because he's wearing a hat. Uh. <laughs> um, hey there. Um, if and when there is another extension, uh, do you think the UK will appoint a new commissioner? And if so, do you have any um, candidates in mind? Okay, and let's have uh, this fellow down the front here, can we? And we'll do, we'll do a couple at a time. Can we have this fellow down the front here? 
it's probably a moot point because by what you said, there's not going to be a meaningful vote, but how have the DUP been brought on board for this new deal? Okay, let's do those two. It sounds like, Jonathan, I think you're probably the best person to go with the, will there be a new well, commissioner? If the UK remains a member state, it would be expected to fill all the various posts which member states fill. So there'll be a commissioner, there'll be judges in the court, uh, and the members of the European Parliament elected at the last election would remain members of the European Parliament. Uh, so yes, I would expect a commissioner to be uh, designated and then appointed after parliamentary hearings in the normal way. Uh, I'm not going to mention names, and well, I will you mention busy, one. You busy in November, uh, and he won't—he won't thank me for saying it. But there's a perfectly good British commissioner at the moment, uh, and I imagine he would be under some pressure to r remain. And uh the, the follow-up question to that is: What happens if the UK consciously decides not to appoint a commissioner? There are some people who say, "Well, that makes any decision taken by the commission uh, invalid." Well, there are two answers to that, I think. Sorry, I, I don't want to get too technical about this. One is, yes, there'll be litigation and all the rest of it. Uh, uh, there are a lot of people who think that there are too many European commissioners anyway, and there are various mechanisms provided for already in the treaties to reduce the number of commissioners. It may lead to a debate of, that it wasn't with that in mind that that was written in, of course. But ultimately, you're right, if the commission is not legitimately... Uh, composed, then all of its acts are subject to legal criticism. The interesting, thing, the interesting thing about extending Julian King, who's the current UK commissioner, is that he did go on Twitter with quite a critical tweet about the tone of discourse in Parliament in that very nasty day's session that, uh, that we had when Parliament was first called back after the uh, non-prorogation. I want to come on to the question on the DUP, which I think is really, really interesting. Because it's really interesting the way the defaults work in this proposal and what does it give the DUP the right to do. Because Northern Ireland, because of its politics, has the most complicated set of decision-making processes. So it's not pure majoritarianism. That actually is what was a uh, you know, route to the troubles. So each community has a right of veto, which means you can not make decisions. So it matters enormously what the default is and whether the default proposition is stay aligned with GB in which case you are probably going to stay aligned with GB, or is the default the status quo? And I think it's really, yeah. But the DUP is, there's a really interesting article in today's, sorry about this, Peter, Times, um, uh, where they interview a former loyalist who says, actually, Brexit's making you thinking of voting. This is a loyalist paramilitary saying, where we've got to on Brexit, so bad in Ireland, uh, in Northern Ireland, I'm thinking of voting green next time round. Uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, environmental green. Environmental green, not Republican <laughs> green yet. I, I had a t when I was in Belfast, I had a taxi driver. Uh, shouldn't do taxi driver anecdotes, but he said, I didn't meet anyone called Patrick till I was 30. I spent my childhood chucking you know, Molotov cocktails at Catholics. I voted alliance in the European Parliament elections. Things are moving in Northern Ireland, and the DUP may just be desperate for a ladder to climb down because the business community and the farming communities in Northern Ireland hate the prospect of no deal much, much more even than they do in the rest of GB. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, I think. Um, it's important to note, though, that the proposal as constituted gives the consent, it's a very loaded word, consent, gives the endorsement, gives the say, because consent means something different in the Good Friday Agreement, gives the say about regulatory alignment on single market for goods, etc. It doesn't. 
give a say in the other direction, right? On, on the question of alignment on customs, it's, it's completely silent. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, there is no provision there for the community but to have that a say. Is so it, it's yeah. a deeply divisive... But it's interesting, because if the EU wanted to negotiate around this and say, actually, you know, we accept this principle, you know, that we need to democratise the backstop, that's been, you know, Prime Minister's words, undemocratic backstop, and say, but it should apply to customs too. Why don't actually you do it? And actually the status quo is the thing that's consistent with the Good Friday Agreement. So let's do it that you have the option to move away from the status quo. Then you might actually be saying, we'll take a risk on the decision-making process but in Northern Ireland. But this is the entire problem here, is that you could have a scenario where actually you worked out how you were going to run the, the Irish Sea border, right? And you had reduced the risk to the European Commission. And that you had created a system whereby actually you could have some derogations from the Union Customs Code and you could make that border work, right? That sounds... That, not in a week. And it sounds pretty much like the construct we had under Theresa May, which was we will look at alternative arrangements, but unless and until they work, until we're clear what the trading relationship is between GB and the UK, we're not going to mortgage our trade policy and our external border to a wing and a prayer, right? What we need is a careful courtship here over a period of time, which, as Ivan Rogers said, will take five, ten, whatever years. You know, we can't have a shotgun... Shotgun wedding here, you know, and I, and I do shotgun think... Shotgun divorce, I think. Well, shotgun divorce. I mean, I do <laughs> think there are... So we shouldn't be totally bluky about there not being solutions, but they can't be, you know, solutions overnight. Right, we're running, running over time. Are we allowed a couple more questions? It's literally just two. Yeah, let's just get a couple more. Um, there's a fella in a... Uh, what is it, a scarf or a cravat? I guess. Scarf. Yes, you. I, um, I I think the panel broadly assumes that we are going to leave the European Union, so could we project ourselves some years into the future? The government's plan seems to be London is Singapore on Thames and the North is onshoring industrial Bangladesh style. Do you see that as a good solution for the UK or not, and how does that play out for the EU? Uh, we've got a woman who wants to ask questions, so she definitely gets a shot. Uh, how much of a future do you think the EU has as an institution if Brexit goes well for Britain? Good one. Uh, and let's try and squeeze one more in. Uh, let's have middle centre. Middle centre, middle front. Uh, on level playing field commitments, um, what do the panel think the EU's position is in relation to the possibility of no level playing field commitments but a Canada-style deal, given that there aren't level playing field commitments in the actual Canada deal, or not very many? Uh, and that's on the EU side. And on the uh, more political question on the UK side, does the panel think that actually uh, a, a, an absence of level playing field commitments is acceptable in our, to UK politics, given in particular the number of conservative politicians who are keen to say, oh, of course there will be no slippage in environmental commitments or in uh, workers' protection? Except Liz Truss on Twitter yesterday. <laughs> yes. Okay, right, we need to... We gotta, right, you can't be brief about Brexit, let's be honest, but let's tr try. Uh, is that one for you, Jill, that last one? Should we take that first? Is that... Like it might There's clearly no majority in Parliament at the moment for regressing on environmental social protections, stuff like that. I mean, so that's a sort of issue for post-election where we might see the sort of differences emerging. I want to just take the question about the sort of UK in the future. I think the really interesting thing is, yeah, so all these predictions on WTO terms say we take a bit of an economic hit, you know, really quite a big economic hit on the Treasury projections of sort of, you know, 8% of GDP after 15 years. 
But if Brexit forced us to actually really look at some of the underlying drivers of our economic performance, not regulation, but skills strategy, um, you know, industrial strategy, and you know, lots, of, lots of those things, and really force a real rethink, and we, yeah, what can we do? Things we could do now, because actually the EU is not a giant burden, but actually force that sort of mega rethink, the sort of thing New Zealand went through 10, 15 years after it was forced to rethink by the UK's entry into the EU, then actually, you, if you could move UK productivity performance up from it's sort of you know languishing over the last 10 years to get back to where trend productivity growth was before, we actually could make up, th make up qu quite a lot of that back. We could do that in the EU, it's not stopping us from doing it, but if it actually you know, meant a serious rethink about lots of other bits of policy in the country, we could actually end up in a place that it doesn't have to just be this sort of deregulatory Singapore on Thames route. And I think that's when the challenge to the other political parties than the Conservatives after an election, do you have a different vision of Britain that can actually up our economic performance and make back some of that lost ground? <coughs> but all of that requires us not to be devoting every um, ounce of our time to discussing Brexit and the future relationship. And the big problem is Brexit is not going to go away. On the specific point about level playing fields, um, the, if you look at what's in the Canada CETA, um, there are a few really paltry provisions on social matters, essentially ILO. I don't mean to belittle the ILO, but it certainly falls far short of the uh, protection that uh, workers enjoy at the moment. And I do not think there's an appetite across the country for widespread deregulation of workers' rights. So if that's the position, Singapore and Thames we ain't going to be. So then the question is what we, we're going to be travelling. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree. I'd actually agree with that. And that's why I think, you know, the, the, uh, the mantra of to get Brexit done. When Boris Johnson was campaigning and he was asked at a Telegraph subscribers event why he was going to vote for Theresa May's deal, which he did at the third time of asking. Mm -hmm. And it was essentially to get Brexit done, to get into a transition period. And once the British negotiator is sat opposite Sabine Weyon and, you know, asks for a deal without any level playing field and is it confronted by the cost of that, you will start to see, I think, gravity take over. And, and, and that's an argument for, for all of the, you know, it's the same argument for a t long time limit on, a, on, a, on an Irish backstop, which the Irish would hate, but it wouldn't be there as a solution. It'd be there because actually we all need to kind of get out of our ditches, get off our high horses, and try and get into a kind of something, get out of get out of the politics and into the policy. And Jonathan, that, that question about the EU. I mean, we all sit here talking about the UK. It's what we're accused of not thinking about the EU enough. What happens to the EU when we've got our, uh, you know, we're, we're our buccaneering our way around the world? Where do, where do they, they end up? Well, the EU will change, uh, and the buzzword in Brussels at the moment is sovereignty or souveraineté. It's the French who are now pushing this, and you add lots of adjectives to it. Uh, technological, digital sovereignty, economic sovereignty, monetary sovereignty. Uh, the EU, I think, will have to get on with uh, shoring up the euro, uh, promoting, defending, sustaining the euro, which means a lot of very difficult decisions about economic and fiscal policy. Uh, and it has to deal with the challenges of China and the United States and a buccaneering United Kingdom, if that's what the United Kingdom becomes and depending on what that means. Uh, so, I mean, nobody's suggesting, or I'm not suggesting that there are sunlit uplands ahead of us uh, at all for everybody. I mean, one way to think about the future relationship is services. Forget customs for a minute. 
services, amazingly, and this came as a revelation to me in the last few years, uh, counterintuitively, services are as geography proximity sensitive as goods. Uh, you're just pressing a button, but actually you press the button more with your neighbors than you do with the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, services are not stopped at customs posts. They are uh, dealt with by regulation. How you regulate services is whether they are uh, provided in your territory or not and how. Uh, the UK is a big service economy. Uh, the way the EU looks at services with its neighborhood is to say there is a direct correlation between the rules and the ability to provide service, the right to provide services. The closer your rules are to mine, the more easily I will uh, accept your services. So the level playing field argument, which has suddenly re-emerged, is going to be dominant for a very long time. The UK is going to have some very hard choices to make about how aligned it is prepared to be as a trade-off for access to European markets. Okay, um, like this podcast, Brexit's going to go on forever, basically, is, uh, is what we've learned. Um, uh, we need to finish there. Uh, I'm sorry we went on a bit long, but uh, I think you probably all learned more here than you will listening to Brendan O'Neill talking to uh, <laughs> um, that other man. Uh, so let me say thank you to Catherine, to Peter, to Jill, and to Jonathan. Uh, this will be online. Thank you, and to you.